Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My guest today is Jerry Flahive. He's a, a really interesting guy and, and a fun interview and, and just a delightful uh, person to, to hang out with. And I think you're going to really enjoy uh, today's conversation. We talk about documentary film. We talk about uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. We talk a little bit about Star Wars, and that was a bit of an issue for me. That uh, You might even sense a little bit of tension there. But uh, who, who can deny that 2001 changed the way we see movies? We talk a little tiny bit about uh, Justin Trudeau and his, his good looks. We talk about uh, Jerry's alter ego. We talk about the power of story and documentary and about the D word. And, and we talk about life in general and about how, you know, how one has to assemble the story. And I'll leave that out there. How, how does one assemble the story in relation to uh, film, writing, and, and really, frankly, just teasing out the way we live our lives? And what exactly is the creative interpretation of actuality? Sounds fairly academic, but Jerry really unpacks it for us in a beautiful way. Stay tuned uh, for the interview coming right up, davidpecklive.com, for more information about my podcasting. Uh, I'm getting close to 300 interviews there, folks. Uh, check it out. Hot Docs is coming up. We've also got more interviews on rabble.ca and don't forget that you can support the work I do uh, I'm not actually asking you to purchase the, the podcast but you can come alongside and support what I do here at face to face through patreon.com so stay tuned Jerry Flahive coming right up welcome to face to face we're joined by a, a, another very special guest uh, today Jerry Flahive he's a uh, an interesting guy we met recently through a publicist I, I love these kinds of connections Jerry uh, thanks for joining us today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Jerry, Jerry's hard to put into uh, any kind of, I was going to say put into a nutshell, but I don't know that that makes any sense at all. But uh, your bio, I mean, documentarian, 33, 34 years with the National Film Board, 
you're a producer, you're a director, you've uh, award-winning docs, you've got an alter ego, uh, you write comedy, you've written for The Globe and for HuffPo, a company you've got called Modern Story. You're a consultant, a story consultant. What, pray tell, is that? And it's just so I'm not even – have I captured most of what you Sure, do? I'll take all that. Sure. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. You'll take all that? Yeah. yeah. And anything else we can throw in there? No, that, that that's enough. I, I think I, I think maybe the answer is I have a short attention span, so <laughs> right. it's, it's it's nice to have had and to continue to have a lot of interest and try a lot of but, different things. But clearly, also with a whole lot of focus, when I look at some of the things you've done, award-winning Peabody Award for for a documentary uh, that you did a few years ago. Uh, I don't think you can produce uh, over uh, how many films. I think about 80. 80, yeah. yeah. I thought I was going to say 100, but yeah. uh, about 80 films. Um, and we are going to talk about uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau's good looks uh, at some point. Great, great. Very important issue. It is. It, it clearly is, yeah. yes. And it, it comes up in some of your writings. Yeah. So I, yeah. I do want to I'm not obsessed that. or anything. <laughs> That's right. Oh, right. And of course, uh, one of the other things I want to talk about is Stanley Kubrick in 2001. When we first met, when we had our first conversation, uh, it seemed like everything came back to mm-hmm. to 2001 for you, yeah. and so um, you know who knows maybe that's a good good place to start. But I'm gonna I'm gonna start with a quote that I that I scribbled down uh, in our first conversation. You said, "quote A lot of tech innovation comes from story." Close quote. And I was fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, academically, I was fascinated. Uh, what does that even mean? I mean, and and and. Why, let, let's start there. You're, sure. You are a storyteller, clearly. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a, somebody who worked in film for a long time, but actually is, I've always had an uncomfortable relationship with technology. And and I think for two reasons. One is it doesn't come naturally to me. I mean, some people came into filmmaking, particularly documentary. That's where, where I work, documentary filmmaking, not, not drama. Some people come into documentary through social issue. You know, doc, they're, they're driven to change the world and make the world a better place, and documentary is a, a good way to do that to try to do that um and the technology of filmmaking is sort of secondary it's just a necessary evil to get a message out other people come in because they love technology they're comfortable with technology uh they love playing with it seeing what it can do stretching it uh you know i wouldn't say those are more pure filmmakers but it's the the you know the act of filmmaking is what engages them i sort of sit in neither of those camps i think um, you know, I didn't, I, I, I was incredibly lucky to get a job at the National Film Board that ended up lasting 33 years, you know, 1981 and, and not even starting in production. Uh, but, uh, but at the, on the other end of the spectrum, I'm, I'm not uh, a technology person. Uh, it, it's something that's never come naturally to me. And as a producer, I always felt that I, I had to know enough to know what I didn't know, know enough to be able to make decisions. But, um, and I think it was it was a weakness, but at the same time, I think I countered it with other strengths. So I think technology now, because of the evolution of new forms of media and new ways of telling stories, uh, you know, every new technology, every new platform brings with it, you know, a new wave of people trying to jump in. Sometimes organizations rushing too quickly to the other side of the ship to uh, embrace or explore new technology. I I think the most exciting thing about all this new tech in the last 10 or 15 years, interactive documentaries and now virtual reality and podcasting, which is sort of new again, um, is not so much anything about those individual technologies. Uh, I think it's more about exploding the idea of what a story can be and how to express ideas which aren't even necessarily 
always best expressed in the form of story. So I have a kind of love-hate relationship with technology. My last years uh, at the NFB, I, I left in 2014. I was doing a lot of a production and interactive uh, documentary, and the film board was and is a world leader in that. But the thing, as I said, the thing that excited me was was the potential to tell stories in new ways, not the technology itself. Uh, I, I didn't really care about that. And, and these technologies change very rapidly, too. When I started at the NFB in 1981, the, the production and distribution technology hadn't changed in about 30, 40 years. 16 millimeter film. I walked into a place that had 10,000 16 millimeter film prints. <laughs> and that was the production technology. That was the distribution. If you wanted to see an NFB film, you'd come and borrow a heavy 16 millimeter print in a giant metal can. I've done it with my family. Yeah. yeah. And, Laure and Laurel and Hardy movies. Actually. Right. I used to go to the yeah. public library, library and yeah, borrow the projector and get the, the shorts. And every now and then the bulb would be burnt out. That's right. And That's I right. I was so proud of the fact that I actually knew how to feed it through. Well, I, And there was that little button you had to push down. I got my first job in film because I lied saying that I could uh, thread a film projector. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had worked, I got a job at a, a cultural center in Toronto called Harborfront and. Uh, Working in the film department, which was working with one uh, amazing person, Hannah Fisher, was the programmer. But uh, it came with one other job. I had to run the projector at Friday night, the midnight screenings. And they said, do you know how to run a projector? And sure, of course. And I had no idea. So uh, <laughs> so that was my first job. And I was here I was lying about and film technology. That's when the... Um the, the your discomfort with technology began. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's all all traced it could back be. to this it's, guilt. It was traumatized, yeah. My the, guilt. The yeah, guilt tied over up with this that. lie. Yeah, I'm yeah. a fake. They're going to reveal <laughs> You're it. Yeah. A fake. yeah. So, quote, documentary was once seen as the castor oil of cinematic genres. It was supposed to be good for you, but it didn't taste very good. Aside from the fact that this just wasn't true, the adjectives boring and dutiful applied equally to many dreary fiction films. Today, documentary might be the coolest cultural form around. And new digital technologies are part of the reason documentaries are connecting with new audiences in innovative ways, close quote. You wrote that mm -hmm. in an article called Documentary Has the Future Covered. So you're uncomfy with tech. Right. Doesn't sound like you're uncomfy with the future. Doesn't sound to me like you're uncomfy with storytelling. There's a connection here to Stanley Kubrick. I know there is. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tell me more about this cultural, this cool cultural Yeah, I, I, I think documentary, it, it's... It seems hard to believe, but it's we only have to go back maybe about 15 years where documentaries didn't play in movie theaters. I'll, I'll go back even further. I mean, w w you know, in the early 80s when I started the NFB, no internet, no video, no film festivals, really. I mean, right. the Toronto Film Festival had just been around, you know, a handful of years. So, uh, I, you know, not very many television channels. So if you wanted to see a documentary film, you probably were in a classroom, you were in a university, you were in a church basement, the much maligned church basement, right. uh, as, you know, that's where documentaries get seen. Uh, and what was stood, you know, certainly CBC, maybe a few others, showed documentaries, sometimes long-form documentaries, but often those were really kind of current affairs news. So documentary was seen as something that was just a kind of educational, pedagogical tool. Right. There you were, had to do it. If yeah, you to I mean, it, it, an issue. It, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think that there obviously were amazing cinematic documentaries made decades before that and always continue to be. But the public perception was one that was a bit dour. Um, it was kind of, you know, an information delivery machine, not, uh, not films, really. And there was even, you know, a period where 
in the industry, people would say, you know, refer to documentary half jokingly as the D word. You know, we don't want to say documentary because that's going to put people off. And I think, um, you know, it started, uh, the turn, I think, started in some ways with Michael Moore. Sure. And yeah. uh, I think maybe looking at maybe 2003 uh, and a little further back with uh, with some of his films playing in movie theaters. And suddenly the, so that was, I mean, who's going to go pay $10 to see a documentary in a movie theater? Even if I wanted to see it, it's on television for free, right? Mm -hmm. That's, uh, so... It, and it would would how could a documentary offer a cinematic big screen experience that would hold an audience for ninety minutes? So those are those are kind of notions that I think are gone now, um, and uh, I, I think that the evolution of all the you know the internet and and new technologies, uh, new distribution technologies, film festivals uh, brought. Uh, expansion of channels and now with Netflix just brought documentaries to people in a way they couldn't get them before and suddenly started seeing these are really interesting they're they're amazing ways of understanding stories and I always felt I mean my joke was that I didn't understand why anybody made fiction films uh, huh. you know the documentary was always way more interesting right. to me in fact I I literally dropped out of film in university I was in York University studying film the first year uh, my first year in 1975 and I went into it convinced I was the most passionate person in the world about filmmaking. There was no one who was more interested in it. It had started for me, you know, about um, only about seven years before when I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey. I get there. It turns out I, I was I was not even close in my intense passion for film uh, as many of my, my colleagues. And, and it was kind of a bit too much for me. I sort of thought, you know, there is something. I love filmmaking, but there's something more than, than this. And it was an amazing professor who, you know, said something that, that changed the course for me. Uh, Peter Harcourt, late Peter Harcourt, amazing uh, Canadian film prof and, and academic. And he said, if you want to make films, you need to know something about life first. And so that really connected with me, that it wasn't so much the making of films, it was what they were about. Um, so I switched course to study English which isn't also uh, necessarily the answer to all of uh, uh, understanding the mysteries of the world. But I, I found I was drawn to documentary more than to fiction. Uh, I just thought the real world was way more interesting. And, and after all these years, I still, I still contend that's the case. I, I think documentary is actually still, it's going to sound funny, I feel as a creative form, as a cultural form, it's still in its infancy. You say in the article, the HuffPo, uh, Huffington Post article, you say that, astonishing quote astonishing delightful inspiring and enlightening us and doing so in ways fiction can't mm -hmm. by framing real life in ways we haven't considered before yeah. close quote i mean it's quite beautiful and it almost sounds way too optimistic and idealistic right. for those folks who still think or might believe that docs are in fact you know the d word or dour right. yeah or dreary or slow moving you know that dutch static feel you know to, mm -hmm. to docs but i love the words astonishing delightful inspiring enlightening it's it's like a book, a great book, right? You're you're stepping into yeah. someone else's life. Well, I, I, you are. Into, you're stepping into history. It, it, you are, and I th I think documentary has often been its its own worst enemy. Um, I mean, it's partly. <clears throat> I wouldn't say it's. It, I wouldn't put the blame entirely on documentary filmmakers and producers, but it's a it's a, a genre that was you know as for much of its time uh, has been funded by television, and uh, and has has been this kind of uh, you know had this uncomfortable relationship with journalism um you know we always thought saw ourselves at the film board as filmmakers not journalists and you know 
it's not about snobbery or anything. I think it's just to make the distinction between uh, two very different forums that use similar storytelling techniques and similar approaches with documentary, uh, you know, uh, interviews, narration, stock footage, all of these sort of tools, but for, for different ends. And uh, I think what, you know, is missing, what has been often missing is a sense of authorship that, you know, if you... You know, you even see it in the way documentaries still to this day get written about. Sometimes if a documentary opens in a movie theater, uh, the review is simply a description of the content. You know, it, imagine if uh, there was a review of The Godfather and it says, you know, uh, tells the story of an Italian family's business operations. You know, I mean, th that is literally what happens in The Godfather. But, you know, that's that's about a half a percent of, of a fair description of what goes on in that film. So... I think documentary is uh, and, and sometimes been uncomfortable wearing the mantle of cinema. This I'd often say to young filmmakers: you are directors. You 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 actually have to make creative choices. And I think real life can sometimes be intimidating. Uh, documentary filmmaking comes with no ready story in most cases. Even if you're telling a, a history film, we did. I, I produced a, a feature documentary based on Margaret McMillan's amazing book, Paris, nineteen nineteen. Some years ago, Paul Cowan was the writer and director and, and cinematographer. And, you know, it's a 600-page book. How do you reduce that to a 90-minute sure. film? Yeah. You have to make choices. You have to throw things out. It's not a photocopy of the book. There's no point of, of doing it. And so if, if you're just going to repeat what was in the, in the previous uh, form, in, in, in print form. So I think television, in a way, has framed documentary as being a certain kind of thing. And, you know, the sheer volume of those kinds of documentaries, which telegraph what's going to happen they show both sides of the issue they are shot in very conventional ways uh they kind of tell you what you're seeing um in ways that we would just find intolerable in fiction and uh and they also cater to some extent to what we expect our own interests already are i'm not interested in science i'm not interested in religion i'm not interested in this subject it, you know we don't approach fiction that way if, if Michael Andachi said his next book was about, uh, you know, ninth century tapestries in uh, Burma or something, uh, we wouldn't say, well, I'm not interested in that. He would just say, I'm interested in Michael Andachi, and I'm willing to let him take me on a ride anywhere he goes because I'm interested in what he's going to do, do you know, with it. Do you know what I love about Docs? There's probably somebody right now making a film about ninth century tapestries from Burma. That's true. That's and true. it's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, would you agree with me, Jerry, that you can watch, uh, you could watch a doc about painting, film paint, uh, sorry, paint drying. Yeah. Right? That classic line, yeah. right? About being bored. I would love and that if, challenge, actually. Well, and yeah. if it was done well, it's like, yeah. wow, this is amazing. I had no yeah. idea this much went into well, paint drying. What, what you're saying actually gets to the heart of what the, the literal dictionary definition of documentary is, and it was coined by John Gerson, who was a Scottish filmmaker and, and uh, theorist, and, and he founded the National Film Board of Canada in 1939. And he defined the documentary as a documentary film is the creative interpretation of actuality or reality. Hmm. Hmm. And I've always clung to that. I think it applies even when we're talking about new technologies, web-based documentaries and VR. It's not the documentation. I mean, the word is a bit troublesome because you think of document, documentary, you think of documenting. You know, a security camera documents what goes on in a hallway. But the creative interpretation 
it has to be creative. It has to be interpretive. It, it, it assumes that there is an author. There's creative a point of view. Creative, creative interpretation of actuality. Of actuality. And, nice. and that, you know, I think at, at many places, uh, and, and in the minds of television, some television commissioning editors for documentary, that goes too far. Um, you know, there's, a, there's issues around fairness and uh, legal issues and what the audience will uh, tolerate. I mean, I would actually go so far as to argue there are few creative forms, storytelling forms, that have stalled as much as documentary. I mean, you can watch a television documentary, I mean, a current affairs documentary, brand new on American television or Canadian television or British television right now that is f formally exactly the same as it was, uh, as one would have been 30 years ago. Uh, you know, if you look at a fiction film, a feature film made in 1975, it looks different than, it feels different. The editing pace, the way it's shot, the framing, the, the you know, the speed of the dialogue, all those things are different. Uh, documentary in many ways stalls. The great work often happens, happens on the fringes of, of documentary. And, you know, I remember when, um, uh, you know, a lot of the way documentaries get financed is people pitching to broadcasters. There's this a thing that's invisible to people outside of the industry. There are these huge pitch forums at places like Hot Docs in Toronto and elsewhere where filmmakers, only a select number of filmmakers are invited to, uh, you have to compete to get a slot. Uh, you get up in front of, say, 50, 60 commissioning editors from all over the world, HBO, BBC, CBC. You have seven minutes to pitch your idea, <clears throat> and they will say yes or no. And now films get made outside of that realm, but it, and it's a bit of a, a you know a circus sideshow. But it says a lot. And and when I was at the film board, we never participated in those because it that works if you're expecting a product to be delivered. If you're a client, if you're a broadcaster, saying yes, I want a one-hour documentary. Actually, I want a 43-minute documentary because that's our slot. And I want to know what the story is. Tell me what the story is. And you know, I think some of the great documentaries that uh, in history were unpitchable. Because the filmmakers didn't know what it's was going to happen. This is what this is what I found so exciting. Yes, you go into an environment and say we're going to make a series of films as as I did with um, Katarina Sizek. We did a whole uh, series of films and other media at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. You go in and you say there's an environment here. You get to know the people. You get to know the issues, the ideas, the things that unfold. But you don't go in saying. Okay, yeah, I've been here for an hour. I think I've figured out what the documentary is going to be about. Now I'm just going to fill in the holes in my content bucket. I'm just going to go count. I've got to interview these three people. I've got to get some shots of people on gurneys. I've got to. That is that is how some documentaries get made, and I think it's not doing justice to the form, and it's not doing justice to the the incredible richness of real life. Is this why, and I've heard this, I think, and we've, we haven't spent a lot of time together chatting, but I've heard a, a skepticism, a cynicism about storytelling in, 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 mm -hmm. in some of the things that you've said. Is this why? Is there an angle? Is this a footnote to why you're a skeptic? I think, I think it might be. I think it might be. I mean, I remember, um, you know, I hadn't been at the film board very long, and when I was first there, I was doing kind of really church basement screenings. That's what was my job, is just, you know, and, and I... Do you, do you eat a lot of potato salad at those? Uh, there was no potato salad, no. nothing. No, oh. there was maybe like cold coffee. That was about it. <laughs> right. but, or a muff, nice. a stale muffin. That was about it. Very glamorous. Uh, but, you know, it was the place where I first learned about audiences. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I still to this day, I mean, if you have you know, a hundred people in a church basement or a community hall and they're watching a documentary that's really powerful and 
importantly, uh, beautifully made and, and is important to them, uh, the response, the, the, you know, the emotion is just uh, to be there in that situation. And I've even, you know, produced films where I've had screenings and the people who are in the film are there. And they're at the end of the film. I mean, they're like rock stars, you know, wow. the, because people have seen a, something real. Sure. But I think that, you know, when I just started, I was invited into uh, a screening of Rushes by John Spotton, who was one of the giants of the NFB. I mean, he actually worked with Buster Keaton. You know, this is a guy who'd made every kind of documentary. And he was producing a film, or he's the executive producer, I think, of a film called Final Offer, one of the great Canadian documentaries directed by Sterling Gunnarsson. It was about... This is another one. It's maybe not paint, watching Painter Eyes, you were saying, but a subject. It was about labor negotiations between uh, Bob White and the Canadian auto workers and Chrysler, I think. Sounds riveting. Yeah. Are you ready for <laughs> so 90 yeah, minutes? Of, I'll, invest, you know, <laughs> I'll invest in that. Wait till you see the DVD extras. You know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, but important. Important. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, the auto industry. I won't go into it, but, you know, it's, it's an important subject. And this is in the early 80s. So, John, they filming for months. You know, what do I know? I'd gone to film school for one year. And uh, so he said, come on, we're going to look at some rushes. You didn't even know how to use a projector. I didn't. Yeah. Projector. Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> don't tell. So uh, so I, we sit down and we're watching, you know, it seemed like hours of rushes of people inside an auto plant in the cafeteria, just wandering around and eating their lunch and everything. And filmmaker is sitting there taking notes john's taking notes i'm like are they are they seeing are there something in here that i'm not getting <laughs> there clearly is something i'm not getting right, right. and uh so that it ended and it just looked like random it's totally random to me and uh i'd never been on a documentary film shoot so i couldn't see well what i was seeing was like like seeing a lump of clay mm -hmm. uh, on the floor of a sculptor's, uh, you know, and, and that particular lump of clay is one that, you know, he decided he liked. He was putting that aside for something. This was going to be the, you know, the arms missing from Venus de Milo or something, you know. That was sort of my, my analogy. And so then they started talking about the footage. And, of course, well, it didn't mean much to me because I didn't know what else they had filmed. But also, hmm. I didn't know how you could shape this into something. What, would, what was valuable in this footage? What wasn't valuable? And so that was a really powerful lesson for me to, to and it was what I find do find exciting about documentary is you have to assemble the story. There are many, many stories you could tell out of that same material. If you write a scene, a one-minute scene uh, for actors, you could argue that in the hands of different directors, you get something quite different. But, you know, you're going to get two people walking in a room and slamming a door. That's if that's what the script is. With documentary, you have no idea. You go in with some intention. Yes, we do want to capture this kind of stuff or that kind of stuff to tell the story, but often it's it's the it's the the um, I guess I'd say almost I don't want to say peripheral, but the the um, the fine grain material of daily life. And so what they were filming were people that they had been following for months. These are these are real people. The third guy on the left in the cafeteria scene is a very important character in this arc that's still developing in the story of the labor negotiations and those relationships and, and what their mood was like at the time. So I couldn't see any of that. It would be like looking at you know a Monet painting only with a magnifying glass at one tiny corner of it and trying to apprehend the whole thing. And so I found that really exciting and interesting and, you know, insanely challenging when I finally came to producing films. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I always pushed, uh, I mean, I worked with some unbelievably talented filmmakers, but I also worked with younger filmmakers who I found, 
often very creatively conservative. You know, they were trying, they didn't want to break anything. They wanted to, right. you know, we've got to, right. you know, we're interviewing a, uh, interviewing somebody who fought in World War II, you know, and we went to their house and they were in their living room. It's like, well, why did you film in their living room? Oh, well, because that's where they live. You know, it's like, would if you were directing a drama, would you just decide wherever the actor was standing when they got out of the van in the morning, that's where you'd film the scene? Of course not. You'd think about the lighting and what what the background says and are they doing something or you wouldn't just plop them down in any available chair so it's about treating uh you know treating real life with respect but also that you are of an responsibility as a storyteller there there's no objective documentary you you know if the if, if you film hours of interviews with with somebody, you're going to discard a huge percentage of it. You know, a shooting ratio well, a documentary might be 250 to one of what you've shot versus what ends up in the and, film. And isn't editing really a form of censorship? Of, yeah. of one kind or another. Yeah, but but if if the film presents, if documentary presents this sort of neutral, objective, professional sheen that you know this one hour film or ninety minute film you're seeing is the ultimate definitive telling of this story, that's a lie. But if it has the hand of, of an artist, an author, a filmmaker on it, then, you know, we're not going to accuse Michael Andachi of not being fair, of not being uh, comprehensive enough about whatever he's writing. It's his choice. He made his choice and maybe he made some stuff up and maybe it's, you know, he's mixed up something, but he's made choices. And yes, if a journalist goes on television tonight and says, you know, Pearl Harbor wasn't bombed in 1941. It was bombed in 1943. That's factually incorrect. There's not, it's not an issue of opinion or art. It's just wrong. But we always felt in documentary, we still have the obligation to get things right. We could, wouldn't have the freedom to just um, uh, make up facts. But, you know, we were telling the story of often of real people, and that involves complexity. Tell me, tell me what your thoughts are on um, truth in 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 narrative storytelling and documentary like uh, storytelling so in other words you know facts are important right. to the documentarian clearly you've got to get dates right and yeah. numbers as right as you can and so on but style substance uh, content form all these things come into play as you tell this story yeah. it may not ultimately necessarily be true mm -hmm. but it's still pointing to a truth of a right. particular right. story. so do you mean uh, in like a work of fiction like a drama well, even a documentary, yeah, for yeah, heaven's yeah. sakes. But yeah, definitely. So some people will say, you know, like uh, fictional films. Well, was it? Is it true? Like, right. You know, you yeah, know, yeah. Based on truth. Well, right. How much? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. well, it's based on truth. Then I'm going to go see it. Right. Because clearly, it's it's about history after all. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. as if a fictional film certainly couldn't be true. Right. And right. I think I, I just think that's a I think that's so misleading. Doesn't, yeah. Don't, it, doesn't fiction point to truth all the it, time? Of course, sure. Yeah. But it, it's it's you know. I've never understood that sort of objection, you know, when people see, uh, let's say, a feature film based on, you know, there were a number, think of all the films made about the Kennedys, you know, and JFK, and there's been you know, a recent film about LBJ and another one about Jack. I mean, I saw two films at TIFF uh, in 2016, I think, that both depicted the Kennedy assassination, but in, you know, in unbelievably different ways. Right, right. So, but if you just take one of those films and you'd say, it didn't really happen that way, or he didn't really look that way. I mean, who cares? What is this? Is this going to put a permanent blot on the historical record? We have no other sources. I think, in some ways, those objections speak to um, p 
people's i think there's a there is a sort of nervousness just as i'm mm. thinking this out i think there's sort of a nervousness about history something you don't tamper with you right. know uh, you know, history is written by historians. As it, uh, I mean, one of the most influential books, uh, it's, it's hard to say that um, you read stuff in high school that's on the curriculum that's influential. But I, I, it actually happened to me. It was a book, um, and now I'm not going to remember the author's name, but famous British historian, uh, called What is History? And it introduced to me the to the class, grade 12, uh, at St. Mike's in Toronto, the idea of historiography. And I, I was just blown away. I mean, that was my first introduction to anything meta. You know what I mean? It's like there's there's history about history, history about how history is written. So people actually study the lack of objectivity or the attempted objectivity right. or subjectivity. So it really stuck with me. And so I don't go to any film expecting it to be this perfect history. In, in fact, I, I would say the opposite. You know, you see... Uh, again, these two films, there's one called LBJ, um, a big Hollywood film. I don't know if it's been released theatrically yet. You know that they labored over getting the right paint color and the, sure, yeah. you know, the prosthetics and everything. And it just looks dead. It looks lifeless because they've so obsessed over the small little details as if that will bring it some ring of truth. The other film, it's not a perfect film, the other film, Jackie, uh, with Natalie Portman, um, and it's just made by, I think it's a, a Chilean filmmaker, um, and I think made for a French production company, much more evocative. You, you, you know, it's it's just, it's a whole other window into that period of, of just before and just after the Kennedy assassination. It had much more truth to me, uh, but I, I the first film probably would win the prize with historians. If you go through the checklist and say, that actually happened in this order, and this guy right. wasn't actually in the room, or, you know, who cares? Um, so I, I think there's a lot of labored breathing over all of this stuff. I, I, I would say, though, that, I, I, you know, not to be entirely irresponsible, you know, I think sometimes when there are films made about historical subjects where not a lot has been done, that it becomes, that becomes the touchstone for people. So it happened that way because there's one major film that dealt with that historical I just, uh, subject. I find it interesting that, you know, just folks, a lot of folks, including me, documentary is true fiction mm -hmm. is untrue mm -hmm. and i don't think there could be anything further from the truth right than that. yeah yeah <laughs> as, as yeah it, that it, as i would say audiences are more sophisticated now i yeah, definitely can yeah. remember 20 years ago the film where did a film um it was a particular film about world war one and the filmmaker um had used a little dramatic reenactment and some and, and sort of in a stylized way and there was one scene which was shot in color and it was a um it was a sort of pilot's mechanic talking to camera and having a conversation with the director off camera. I, I was, you know, I was still doing sort of community work for the film board. I would get calls, angry calls from veterans. And it's like, that's not true. He That's a lie. And, you know, that never happened. And it's like, yeah, it never happened because in 1914, there was no color and there was no sound. Right. And why would he be talking to a director off camera who's a director who's currently living? You know, like... But they they couldn't see that, right? I I don't think you'd have that same issue now. People uh, see layers of construction in a film or a video or whatever. Um, they're not taking it as literally. So I think that there's more license and more room to be playful. That people don't necessarily uh, take literally everything they're seeing on scene and say you made you know you you lied you misrepresented what happened there. So um, 
you refer in our first meeting you referred to yourself as a 2001 fanatic yeah it's it's had an impact by the sounds uh from what you've told me what little you've told me and what little i've read, uh, read as well you've got a couple articles on online mm -hmm. about it uh um it to say that it changed your life is a bit of an understatement yeah yeah it it it, it did really and I, I think i think not out of any uh snobbishness or anything i don't i'm not really somebody who's a huge i i, I like science fiction but i'm not i don't go to comic-con i'm not you know, I'm I'm not particularly enamored of. I know these are fighting words of, of Star Wars and they, you know, they all those are things. They're words. fighting words, yeah, so we'll really get to are. that. Yeah. We'll yeah. turn they off really the mics. Yeah. But I right. I think it's it's because of when I saw 2001, mm -hmm. uh, which was in the summer of 1968. It had just opened. I saw it at the Glendale Theater in Toronto in Cinerama, where, as far as I can determine, it played longer than anywhere in the world. Played for two years, um, and uh, I was 11 years old, and I've actually wow. I'm so, so obsessed. Easy. I actually went back and looked up all the films that I might have possibly seen as a kid up to that point. Up to that point. Because, again, I mean, where would you see films? Other than The Wizard of Oz being on television once a year, you'd see them in movie theaters. So I, my diet would have been Disney films and yep. that sort of thing. Yep. So it's like, you know, I'd only had ice cream and now I was given this, you know, seven-course French meal. And, of course, I didn't understand it. I mean, it, there was no possible way. And uh, lots of people at the time, the film was not widely uh well received uh lots of some critics even changed their minds about the film ultimately i mean the most famous uh anecdote is there was a one of the premier screenings in new york or washington i think or la and rock hudson ran up the aisle of the theater about 20 minutes in and said can somebody tell me what the hell this film is about so as an 11 year old i wasn't going to get it but it set off a little bomb in my head and mostly it was two things one is i wanted to know how they did it and, and I, you know, I was 11 years old. I wasn't particularly interested in the mechanics of filmmaking up, up to that point. But also, you know, aside from the sheer beauty and spectacle of it and mystery of it, um, you know, I wasn't so precocious that I was trying to get into the philosophy of it. But there was something, and it's a scene that most people don't remember in the film. It's, not, it's certainly not one of the most spectacular scenes. But early in the film... Uh, a scientist goes to the space station and ultimately goes to the moon. And there's this, they've discovered the monolith on the moon. It's the first sign of uh, alien life uh, that humans have come across. And they have this meeting in a boardroom uh, with, and there's, you know, they've kept it secret from the world. And now they're sort of going to go look at the monolith. So he's going to go look at the monolith. And it's actually an incredibly banal piece of, uh, dialogue. There's just about it's a, just a few minutes of you know he gets up and speaks and then sort of chit chat, and I I, I realized and I, I wasn't able to press it at the time. It was the first time I saw how adults actually talked, hmm. because dialogue in films, certainly all the films I'd seen, I mean it was movie dialogue. This did not feel like movie dialogue. And as an 11 year old, I hadn't been in a boardroom and heard adults talk. And so there's this kind of banal, you know, how's it going and all that stuff that we're used to. And then it got very serious very quickly. And then it kind of broke up. And and it was almost like I, I just had been, some secret had been revealed to me. Sure. And so that, you know, Kubrick, um, th there are very few accidents with Stanley Kubrick. I mean, uh, you know, it wasn't, it, and, it, and it, the film was actually heavily criticized for so the banality of the acting and the banality of, of the screenwriting there's there's no dialogue for the first you know 40 minutes of the film or so uh, but there was something else going on there and uh so that that struck me and and i i just 
I, in trying to understand and reading film magazines and trying to understand how the film was made, I just I ended up seeing, I've probably seen it in theaters, you know, 45 times. And it has obviously deep religious meaning. But in terms of story, it's, you know, it's, it's the biggest criticism of it is it, it, nobody knows what the end means. Right. It uh, doesn't have traditional narrative arc. At first we're in, you know, we're with apes millions of years ago and then we're just, there's very little exposition. I mean, there's no exposition. You're just plunged into yes. things. Yeah. And that actually echoed for me when I started producing uh, interactive work because with interactive work, uh, the you kind of step away from some authorship. You know, uh, um, in a way, you, you, you have to leave more to the viewer, more to the user to kind of interpret and figure out. And I felt very comfortable with that all through my filmmaking career. I didn't feel a need to, you know, story is fantastic and story arcs are important and some ideas and, and issues lend themselves more readily to storytelling. Maybe, you know, you and I can brainstorm about how to tell a story about paint sure. drying and I think sure. we could come up with one. But maybe music and painting and, and dance are not as popular as they are because of narrative, because of story. So why does film always have to wear this mantle of what's the story? So I think it was those two things for me was interest in documentary in real life and the impact of 2001 to say, this extraordinary film can have a powerful, deep meaning and not really be the greatest story ever told. So it, it, it honestly is breaking my heart that we're going to have to wrap up here in a couple of minutes. And I already feel part two coming on for sure. Because I, I, one of the, and I say this often, but one of the, I, I, I hosted a panel discussion at the Lightbox this week and it went on for an hour and 45 minutes. And I said, it wasn't Mark, enough. It wasn't enough. And I said to Mark Kingwell, and the audience felt so it's, it's the same way from, from what I hear. And Mark Kingwell, uh, a philosopher from U of T who's got a new book coming out, by the way, on baseball uh, uh, called Fail Better. <laughs> you might want to check it out. But yeah. but um, I said, Mark, I feel like we were just getting started. Big smile. And he's like, yeah, me too, Dave. You know, great. And so, so great. great. But so so there's there's so much more here. What did you bring? I'm fascinated by the fact that you were 11. What did you bring to the theater that other 11 year olds didn't? Like, I am truly intrigued yeah. that, you, that you stayed you yeah. stayed for the opening scene. Rock Hudson couldn't take yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. I, I have that over Rock Hudson, what's, yeah. What's going on? Well, you know what? I think in a funny way it was an accident because a bunch of us, uh, it was all boys, I think, um, a friend of mine had a birthday party and his dad took us to see 2001 A Space Odyssey, probably thinking it's some sort of ro rocket epic or something. That might be the funniest yeah. thing I've ever heard. Yeah, and uh, not knowing what, what the hell we were in for. But I do remember, I mean, I guess I had a certain level of precociousness because it's also my earliest memory of me interpreting art. And we were in the car on the way back. And, you know, there's the famous light sequence where uh, David Bowman, the astronaut, is going through this bizarre light tunnel. He's obviously being transported to some weird part of the universe. Nobody could understand what was going on. But just this sheer... Uh, visceral experience of colored lights flying past him and he's freaking out in the in the spaceship in the small spaceship that he's in and uh, I remember the car on the way back one of the kids said I wonder if those were street lights on Jupiter and I said are you stupid street lights on Jupiter it was like the most literal in he's in a spaceship he was in Jupiter so those must be street those aren't street lights those are I don't know what they are. I'm going to find out what they were, you know. But it's obviously not streetlights. So, so, and if we were if we were watching the documentary about this experience right now, we would then cut to you in the back seat of the car reading a very well worn copy of Fear and Trouble. 
<laughs> that's right. As I you ignored your friend. Yeah. It's oh, a, hey, where's my loot bag? <laughs> that's right. Have you not heard of Northrop Fry? What's wrong <laughs> with you people? What's so, wrong Marsha with McLuhan people? lives in this city. You know, what kind of a birthday party? Yeah, is this? exactly. So I don't know. I, I can't. I can't. Well, put it my is fascinating it, but, to me because yeah. you, you, for me, it's about so much about it is is context and mm-hmm. and part of the reason for me why and we're not going to get into this because we've got to wrap it up, but. Part of the reason for me, Star Wars was so important, uh, and I saw 2001 a few years later. Right, uh, my brother took me, and it clearly had a huge impact, yeah. as did Blade Runner and a few others. But up until Star Wars for me, it was Son of Flubber, it was Chitty Chitty yes, Bang, exactly. Yeah, it was yeah. Sound of Music, and so on. And so to walk into this theater, it was all that I brought to it. Yeah, and all that I didn't bring. So context was huge. Yeah, yeah, and it honestly it blew my mind. Well, I'm glad you, you know, say that because I think context is something that. Um, is vitally important in making anything, making films, making documentaries, whatever. And and I think it's something that gets forgotten, yeah. you know, that um, good work, bad work, mediocre work, it sometimes has an impact because of its timing. And, and sometimes that's sheer luck or sometimes it is somebody thinking hard about. I mean, the problem now, just last thought, I think the problem now is just the sheer you know, tidal wave of content that, that uh, washes over us right. every day to say you can't be the first one necessarily doing something. So it actually, I think it puts more emphasis on uh, your interpretive responsibility as a maker of something, you know, that you've got to bring something fresh because you're probably not going to be the first. Where can people go to see High Rise? Uh, your High Rise, High Rise is an interactive documentary that I produced to the film board. Katarina Sizik was the director, amazing talent. It's at highrise.nfb.ca. It's a multi-platform documentary about how people live vertically all over the world. And uh, one of the pieces that uh, probably has had the most attention was called A Short History of the High-Rise, which is interactive films that tell the history of the high-rise. And that's also at the New York Times website. But everything's at highrise.nfb.ca. And you've got a new book coming out. I have a book that I've been noodling along for quite a time. I have an alter ego was secret for years on Twitter, uh, Bert Zanadu, who's the mayor of Toronto. In a fictional 1973, and he's also the owner of the Imperial Six Cinemas on Young Street, where, where I worked. And uh, it, it's uh, it's kind of a, a bizarre uh, parallel universe of Toronto. And I've so I've been movie mayor uh, at movie mayor on Twitter for about seven eight years. And so uh, the book is called uh, "I Own This Town: uh, The Mayor Bird Zanadu Zanthology," and it's a collection of of some of the tweets, but also I've written articles as Bert. Uh, for spacing and Torontoist, and and I've right. done some other stuff as well. So it's just it's and kind it's of coming out soon. It's coming out later this year, self-published. Oh, okay. Uh, which means I have to finish it by myself. That's what that means. So well, maybe we can I'm come close. back. Maybe when the when the book's published, we can go back and do part. That'd two. be great. I'm Thank really you. disappointed we didn't get to um, an article that you wrote called uh, "Really Good Looking Canadians Demand No Less <laughs> from Their Leader," not as Bert but as Jerry. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and it was a special to the Globe and Mail uh, about a year and a half ago or so. So I uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, well, well, I'm, work, up, I'm working on look one now, up. actually, about the sesquicentennial called You're So Sesqui, because I, I feel we've reached peak Canada 150, so it's time for me to debunk it, just as I was debunking uh, Trudeau's uh, good Well, listen, looks, what so. a pleasure uh, having you on the show today. Thanks so much for your, for Thank your, you. your the, the fun, the jokes, the comedy, the, the and the insights, too, and I'll look forward to part two. Jerry Flahive here with us today on Face to Face. Step 
onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water... It starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.